Welcome back to Talking PFAS. And if you're joining us for the first time, welcome. We're now on iTunes, by the way, so please feel free to leave a review at the end. I'm your host, Kayleen Bell. Every episode of Talking PFAS, I'll be bringing you a candid conversation I've had with a wide range of people and experts, including people who live or work in contaminated zones, politicians who work with these communities to try to get solutions, firefighters who have worked with these chemicals for decades, fishing communities who have had to face closures because of pollution to their fishing environment, remediation experts, researchers who are trying to come up with solutions, scientists, medical professionals, toxicologists, hydrologists, the list goes on. There is a lot to talk about when it comes to this issue, and that's why I wanted to start the podcast. I'll also be digging deep to answer the questions flying under the radar. And please feel free to send me your questions at talkingpfas at gmail.com. Although season one of the podcast begins talking about the Williamtown RAF base contamination, it will not be the only focus of this podcast. I'll be looking at broader issues of PFAS in Australia and also touching on what's happening globally. Because PFAS contamination is a global issue, it's even been found in polar bears. Today I'm bringing you a conversation with the Labor member for Port Stephens, Kate Washington. She's been working with the Saltash, Fullerton Cove and Williamtown communities in New South Wales for three years. Every time people's expectations rise, they're not often met. So we all go into these things now with fairly low expectations, but goodness me, everyone brings their A-game and they try their hardest because they still hold on to hope that perhaps this day, perhaps this story and perhaps this message might get through. I've had two conversations with Kate Washington now about PFAS, one early in March when I was just learning about the issue, and then later in August. Today's episode will feature both of those interviews. And also the General Manager of Port Stephens Council, Mr Wayne Wallace. The level of concern and anxiety by the affected community has escalated substantially to one of significant anger and mistrust of government at all levels, uh, local, state and federal. Here's what Kate had to say about the early days of the PFAS contamination. I was elected in 2015. That was in March. This became known to the community in September 2015 and it became known to us by way of the media. That was the first, I guess, insult to the community was the means by which they were told of how their lives were about to be turned upside down. No one really understood it when we first heard the announcement. We just understood there was contamination. Suddenly we were all sort of trying to look up what is PFOS, what is PFOA, and trying to get our heads around what it actually meant. Initially it was just a lot of confusion, and in terms of the area that it affected, it again made little sense because initially they started out by banning commercial fishing in particular areas. Such as? uh, Fullerton Cove and Tilligree Creek. But then what they hadn't done in their mapping was connect the Moores Drain, essentially, which connects the RAF base to the Tilligree Creek, that wasn't included in the mapping initially. Moores Drain comes directly off the RAF base and it goes north. 
and it's a significant drain. It's huge. Um, and it actually has three different conduit exit points from the base. And it had been known to me before the contamination because it was the source of a lot of flooding in our area for a long time. But particularly early in 2015, we had what we call now the superstorm. And so that whole area was covered in water for months on end because the drains weren't effective enough to get it flowing. And, and so then when we hear the announcement and all of this, it's that dawning realisation that all that water that was lying around earlier that year for months on end was contaminated and people didn't know. The authorities all knew, but I'm sure we'll go to that later. Mm. The fishers were essentially banned from commercial fishing for a year. That was one of the biggest impacts initially because you had people whose livelihoods depended on the fishing that they did and had done for generations. And suddenly, you know, these hardworking people were not able to do what they had always done. And one of the, the mums of the fishing family, it must have been the second Christmas, there was a photo of her with a smile on her face pushing a trolley around a place that she was getting charitable donations from for food. And she was smiling because she was just grateful that they were getting that support. But they were on the edge. And it was just so devastating to see her having to accept charity to be able to provide for their family that Christmas. Okay, so the fishing's up and running. Do you know if there's any testing going on of the fishing now? Well, that's a question that we've been trying to get answers to. I was unable to get a reply from the New South Wales DPI in time for this podcast regarding their ongoing testing regime of seafood, but I will bring you that in a future episode. They did testing initially, but what's the ongoing regime? And that's not clear to me. I know that there's producers up there in Williamtown that were asking if they could sell their produce because they've been told not to eat anything that's homegrown or locally grown. And my understanding is they're allowed to sell it to the rest of Australia, but they can't eat it. Correct. The precautionary principle and the restrictions that people have been asked to comply with means they don't eat their veggies, their fruit, their eggs, all of that. But for the producers, the theory is that if a farmer culls their own cow they're likely to eat the lot themselves whereas if it's all uh, sold into the market chopped up and dispersed amongst us all it's all okay it sits very uncomfortably with all of us actually because we know that products from these areas are able to be sold in the market. A spokesperson from the New South Wales Department of Primary Industries confirmed that tailored precautionary dietary advice was given to people living in affected areas. This advice may include avoiding or not consuming home-slaughtered meat, poultry, fruit, eggs, milk and vegetables. They also said the general population is not at risk from produce from PFAS-contaminated sites because the wider public consumes food from a variety of sources and not a single source. Can you give me a little summary, Kate, of how the issue has played out in state government and federal government? My initial observation is that state and federal governments haven't been working well together. Defence and government federally have been coming up with different plans, different mapping, different precautionary advice for residents. And that's just been really surprising when you've got two governments Uh, state and federally that are both conservative governments, I would have thought that they were capable of working together, but there are definitely different interests at play. And what has been at play from the outset is this 
drive to limit liability. So everyone's comments, everyone's actions from both federal and state have been around that. The whole let's contain this approach, how that's been perceived by many of us has been a real disrespect to the residents shown by both levels of government in the manner in which we are given information, in the manner in which we are spoken to. And I see it in meetings. It makes me really angry and it makes everyone angry. My frustration with the community reference group combined with an elected representative group, they've separated us out. And they did that from the very beginning despite the wishes of the community who specifically asked for me to be in the room and later when Merrill was elected, the same. So you can't be in the community reference group meeting No. And why I thought it was just so unfair for the residents is because now you've got residents that have been chosen to be in the room through their own actions because they're community leaders, but they work jobs. They look after families. I was actually elected by the community to represent the community. And for me not to be given that opportunity to relieve the burden from those people that are in there, you know, because then they go into the meetings and then they have to do the work of disseminating it to the community, all of that when they don't have the resources that I'm given by virtue of my position. That, again, has been a a source of immense frustration because it's been politicised. When we're dealing with such enormous difficulties for the community having been the first time in parliament you know first time representing a community and for me to see firsthand how offensive these decisions are and and how glibly they are made not in the interests of the community that the government ought to be representing the interests of for pure politics do you think you can change it and get into those meetings <laughs> We've asked and we've kept on asking, but I'm loath to make it about me because it's not about me. My focus is always about how can I relieve the burden for the residents. What are a couple of stories that have struck you the most? There's a lot of awful stories. I remember a young woman came up to me and said, I'm pregnant. And it was this dawning understanding at the time of the impacts, particularly on reproductive health, on babies, And so subsequently, we've had mums having babies in the red zone and those parents having followed all of the precautionary principles because we were trying to get advice early on. Can they breastfeed? What can they do? What is? How do they protect their babies? The advice was hard to get. Who knows if it was right or wrong? And people followed the advice they were given. And what was that advice about breastfeeding? It was okay to breastfeed. They've had their beautiful babies. And then the babies have been tested to have high levels of the contaminant in their bodies. And going to the blood tests themselves that residents are getting, the only reason why that even happened, that we've got an epidemiological study, that we've got blood tests, was because there was a federal election and a marginal seat. I heard some residents were denied blood tests as well at at one point. GPs, there's residents in submissions that say they went to the GP and the GP had been advised Mm. not to test for PFAS. Are you aware of that? Mm. Absolutely. The blood tests have always been a difficult issue because according to New South Wales Health, there's no reason to have it done, both in terms of being able to read the results and in terms of what it actually means to have the PFAS in your system. However, it was the residents' desire to understand whether or not they had it in their own system. And so that's why we pushed for it. And ultimately, that came about only because of politics. So every gain that we've made has only been through a lot of hard work from residents and ramping up campaigns. And they shouldn't be having to fight for every step. That's what we've been seeing. 
Samantha Kelly is a former Williamtown Red Zone resident who was pregnant at the time contamination was announced. Here is a little bit of what she had to say at the Williamtown public hearing. I owned a property on Cabbage Tree Road. It was meant to be our forever home. I had a Wollongong professor sit with me when I was pregnant with my son and tell me in front of witnesses that I could be assured that these contaminants do not cross the placenta. A baby at three minutes of age that lives down the road from me tested positive. Just think about that. Where's the harm in saying we actually don't know? I was told there was no lab in New South Wales that could do this testing. I was prepared to fly to Victoria or Queensland to test our blood so that I could make some choices regarding breastfeeding. The day after my story ran in the paper, health department called, oh, we found a lab in New South Wales and and they can do the testing. But disgustingly, we didn't get access to the test unless we were going to pay close to $1,000 per test. We didn't get access to our testing until October of that year. That is shameful. Once we were able to get access to the blood testing um, and the defence paid for that, we had myself, my husband and my nine-month-old son tested. He was almost three times more contaminated than me, his birth mother, at nine months of age. Our doctor categorically said that the discrepancy between mine and my son's blood tests could only explain by environmental exposure, given we had gone above and beyond the advice to the point of paranoia there was nothing more that we can do other than remove him from the environment two weeks later we abandoned the house and set about renting in newcastle any family who wants to leave this red zone has to take either a significant financial loss or basically experience bankruptcy just to be able to have the freedom to protect their children our government knows that our children are being exposed to chemicals and ongoing poisoning and they're doing nothing it's revolting And so those families, at least two of them, have moved away from the area, but they've done it at great financial cost. They've got a young family. They're still paying a mortgage on properties that they own in the red zone because they can't sell them, and they're paying rent in another area, and they've had no compensation whatsoever. Are they getting rent assistance, the ones that have left and, and have to pay mortgage and rent? No, there's nothing. There's nothing going to anybody. The only gain that we've made was to get town water connected. How have Defence, Department of Defence, responded to the contamination problem that that they have caused from the contaminated water that's flown off the RAF base? What we've seen is Defence focusing on the RAF base. All resources are going into trying to stem it, but knowing that they can't stem the flow. They are trying to treat the water now as it comes off the base. I suppose the frustration has been whilst defence have been focusing on work on base in terms of treating the water, there's also been billions and billions of dollars spent in upgrades on the base for defence capacity. So we've got the um, the JSF's F-35 flashes planes will be coming to us by the end of the year, which is going to be another layer on top of these residents' lives in terms of potential noise. Australia has committed to buying 72 F-35A aircraft for three operational squadrons at RAF Base Williamtown, RAF Base Tyndall and a training squadron at RAF Base Williamtown. Each aircraft is expected to cost approximately $115.7 million Australian dollars. The thing is, we all do live around the RAF Base. I suppose the noise from the planes is not something that any of us really take into account anymore because the RAF base is one of the biggest employers and it's an amazing asset for our region and that was I suppose for me one of the gutting things right at the start was because 
our relationship between community and the RAF base had improved in the few years leading up to that. But what we didn't know was that they knew what they were doing. And that goes to the betrayal that we've seen with all of this. Knowing now what we know in terms of defence, Port Stephens Council, state and federal governments, that they all knew that this contamination was not only leaving the base at least three years before the residents were told. They knew it was a long way from the base. Why do you think they waited so long? Limiting liability. All the agencies, federal and state, particularly coming from defence, I believe that there was a lot of pressure from coming from defence to all agencies to keep storm, not tell anyone. The New South Wales EPA has published a very detailed Williamtown contamination chronology, which spans the period from February 2012 to December 2015. This document says in May 2012, Defence emailed the manager of Hunter Region EPA requesting a confidential meeting to discuss results from on-site water monitoring, indicating elevated levels of PFOS at RAF Base Williamtown, including stormwater leaving the base. EPA eventually did the right thing and put the information into the public domain that they all knew. So we were told 2015 they knew in 2012 at least, and by virtue of the the actions that they took with Hunter Water sitting underneath the EPA to protect their water supply. And so then you've got a situation where Hunter Water is embargoing its bores to the south of the RAF base and stopping using that water for the town water purposes. The RAF base Williamtown is located within the Tomigo Sandbeds drinking water catchment area. In its 2015 submission to a different Senate inquiry, Hunter Water stated that PFAS contamination from RAF base Williamtown is already impacting Hunter Water operations via its resulting inability to draw water from some parts of the Tomigo sandbed. And based on the risk of drawing PFAS towards Hunter Water bore lines, three pumping stations, PS5, PS7 and PS9, have been embargoed but nobody shared it with the residents. The residents were then left to continue using their bores, completely ignorant of the fact that the water that they were using was contaminated. So the whole start of this was once that became known and understood, it has been this immense sense of betrayal. There's so little trust between the residents and the agencies because essentially they've just been keeping from them what they needed to protect their own health. It's just the most abominable story and inaction from the government to keep information like that from residents. The General Manager of Port Stephens Council, Mr Wayne Wallace, gave evidence at the Williamtown public hearing about the anguish that residents are suffering because of the PFAS contamination. In 2015, Port Stephens Council had previously outlined the concern and the anxiety expressed by the community. Since that time, the level of concern and anxiety by the affected community has escalated substantially to one of significant anger and mistrust of government at all levels, uh, local, state and federal. From our perspective, the anguish really evolves around continuing uncertainties on government policy issues, which involve compensation or uh, land buyback, the human health effects, the environmental and lifestyle impacts that's being experienced by our residents, the communication and coordination deficiencies, the, the transfer of relevant and timely information, the what appears to be apparent legislative shortcomings, 
uncertainty and delays with uh, remediation works. In the Council's view, not enough has been done by Commonwealth to understand and support affected residents, particularly in relation to compensation. There continues to be an urgent need for a coordinated approach by the relevant authorities on these matters. It's requested that the Commonwealth seek to implement direct compensation measures to affected landowners to provide greater certainty to the community. Certainly from our understanding, timing of potential compensation payments remains the key issue for many affected residents. Next one is about clarity on the health impacts. You know, the wellbeing of, of our residents certainly is critically important and this should be expanded to include psychological and socio-economic impacts of individuals. Effective and timely guidance and assistance should be prioritised into the future. Our observation is that the health advice and the testing, it's been seen to be slow and, and not clearly rolled out or understood by those right across the community. The third point really is, is about the need for greater coordination. And we urge the Commonwealth to establish some sort of an independent, appropriately defined and resourced body with the authority to uh, coordinate between the agencies. This body should determine and allocate the necessary actions in a whole of government approach, federal and state, ensuring that each agency knows exactly what is expected of it and that information is communicated consistently and timely. We certainly believe that there are very real opportunities to improve the, the legislative links between the Commonwealth and the state to ensure matters like environmental pollution and contamination incidents on Commonwealth land are appropriately managed. And the, uh, the fourth one uh, that I'll touch on is about uh, remediation work. And we certainly believe that consideration should be given to the appointment of a Commonwealth environmental regulator or, or such, and implementation of an environmental regulatory framework which would oversee Department of Defence activities on Commonwealth land. This regulator should have the necessary provisions to enforce specific remediation and mitigation measures to be implemented for contaminated land, similar to provisions uh, currently in place under relevant New South Wales legislation. In addition, we'd like to see a genuine commitment to remediate the PFAS from all lands outside of the RAF base. Kate, this is our second conversation about PFAS. When I first interviewed you, I think in March, I was only just becoming aware of the issue, but you'd been aware of it for quite some time, your whole time in Parliament, really. Yeah, this is an issue that has pretty much been the biggest issue in my whole political career, which only started in 2015. But to have this announced in September of that year has meant that it has been a major focus. So out of your time, how much time does PFAS take up? <laughs> it comes up every day. It, there's so many intricacies and complexities to the issue and the way in which it's affecting the environment, the community, our people. There's just so many facets to it. So every single day, there is something on this. It's interesting, I suppose, having been there from the start, in terms of when my community was told about it, obviously other agencies and um, levels of government knew about it for a long time, much longer than we did. But since it was publicly known, it has really been interesting seeing what has been known elsewhere for a lot longer as well, internationally. Let's go to the parliamentary inquiry into PFAS that's been occurring over July and August. What were your thoughts on the Williamtown public hearing on the 24th of July? 
That was a really hard day. It was a really hard day for everyone that was there. The stories were harrowing. I could see the impact it was having on the panel, the parliamentary members who were sitting on the committee. I heard stories that I hadn't heard before as well on the floor that day. Really gut-wrenching. I agree. I was at that hearing. It was very moving and you could definitely see it on the face of the panel. Mm. And, and And the stories were just tragic. When we're talking about the health effects of PFAS, Do you think the language needs to be expanded so that we are including all the effects of PFAS contamination, how it's affecting people, financially, emotionally, mentally? In our community, we understand that there are several ways it's impacting because it is financial, emotional, physical. It's impacted people in so many ways. What surprised you on the day? I suppose I continue to be surprised by the capacity of the community. They are so switched on. They are so clever. They have spent so much time immersed in what's happening internationally because the government's failed to do that. And that's the only way that we've been able to shine a light on the inadequacy of what's been happening locally by their amazing work. And that was on full display at the committee hearing. Yeah, they're a very switched on educated community. And I think one of the sad stories for me was the lady that was recovering from breast cancer and spent the year recovering from that illness studying PFAS. I knew her story, but I didn't know that aspect to it. It's just gutting to think that that's what, you know, when you're trying to recover from a cancer that may or may not have been caused by PFAS and you're spending your time trying to understand it better, it's heartbreaking. Did you come with any expectations where they met? I've now got very low expectations as we've travelled through this. Every time people's expectations rise, they're not often met. So we all go into these things now with fairly low expectations, but goodness me, everyone brings their A game and they try their hardest because they still hold on to hope that perhaps this day, perhaps this story, and perhaps this message might get through. And they still do it time and time again. You know, there were so many people that took more time off work just so they could be in that room. We all just desperately hope that there will be something that comes out of it. Mind you, the same committee hearing was held at the end of 2015. Recommendations were made, none of them adopted. Not one. Years on and we're doing it all over again. We just all hope that the policy makers in the federal government and in the state Berejiklian government are actually listening and that they might actually do something this time. Just while we're on that, is there more talk about PFAS or is it still very limited and shut down when the issue comes up? It's very limited, particularly, well, I can speak to what's happening in state parliament. Uh, Every time I lob it up and raise it as an issue on the floor, well, essentially I'm attacked. I'm attacked for politicising it, accused of politicking. And I I have learnt that when you raise issues that the government doesn't want to hear, then you're attacked. And that's exactly what happens every time it happened last week in parliament. I'm sure it'll happen again this week in parliament. And instead of actually listening and responding, they go on the personal attack against me. Are you talking about last week when you asked the Environment Minister, Honourable Gabriel Upton, what was she going to do to protect the Wagga Wagga community from PFAS? Yeah, that was the latest one. I did ask about Wagga Wagga. Kate Washington asked the State Minister for the Environment, Gabriel Upton, about the Wagga situation in question time in the Lower House on the 9th of August. 
My question is to the Minister for the Environment. Minister, given that PFAS contamination has already entered the creeks and rivers around Wagga Wagga, what steps are you taking to ensure the safety of local residents? Madam Speaker, I'll say it again. This is a new low for the Member for Port Stephens, Madam Speaker. Now, when it comes yes, to did. Wagga, Member for Port Stephens, uh, that contamination, as you should know, but it sounds like you don't, is being investigated by Defence. Okay, defence is the polluter, defence is monitoring, defence is taking steps. For the benefit of the members of this House, Madam Speaker, of course, of course, the Environment Protection Authority uh, is assisting defence. Uh, we are monitoring as well. I mean, this is entirely appropriate. This is the proper process. Now, look, I just think it's absolutely shameful. Absolutely shameful. The member for Port Stephens seeks again, again, to politicise this very serious matter, Madam Speaker, in this House, Madam Speaker, Madam Speaker, she is causing unnecessary distress, Madam Speaker, and we should, Madam Speaker, condemn her in this House. Let us not forget, Madam Speaker, that the New South Wales Government will continue to assist communities across New South Wales and continue to support communities in every way we can when it comes to PFAS. And when the member for Wagga Wagga has had to leave and they've got no representation in this place and we know that there are issues down there, I wanted to understand what the impacts were and what the, what the minister and her department was doing to support that community with the PFAS implications that are happening down there. The EPA has ordered the Wagga Wagga Council to close off its sewerage at the sewerage facility at Forest Hill, which is right near the RAF base, that's been closed off. They've got 500 days until that reaches capacity. The Forest Hill sewerage treatment plant is essential Wagga Wagga City Council infrastructure used to treat the waste intake from the Forest Hill residential area and RAF base Wagga. The Department of Defence has been overseeing PFAS contamination investigations in the Forest Hill area for some time. The New South Wales EPA has directed that Council must not discharge the contaminated effluent from the treatment plant. Based on the expected volume of effluent being treated and expected weather conditions, Council believes that it has the capacity to store up to 18 months of effluent. This means that a solution must be found to the problem within this time frame. A Wagga Wagga City Council spokesperson said that Council will be meeting with Defence in the coming weeks for an update. The PFAS Task Force has gone to the Federal Environment Department. They've removed it from the Prime Minister and Cabinet Department, which was the better place for it to be because we would have hoped there was a whole-of-government response. Federally, they're recognising, well, they've said, well, it's actually an environment issue. And if it's an environment issue, you would think the state minister for the environment would have an interest and should be doing something. As at the 10th of September 2018, New South Wales EPA currently lists 37 PFAS investigation sites. And the majority of those being investigated in New South Wales are non-defence based sites. Well, just last week they announced another site was being investigated, which was the Saltash Weapons Range. I couldn't actually believe it when I heard it being reported last week and the defence spokesperson was talking about it as if it was quite separate to the Williamtown RAF base investigation and contamination. The Saltash Weapons Range sits very near to the RAF base Williamtown and it should have been investigated 
The other concerning element of that new investigation is that the residents impacted are likely to be those that are already impacted or identified as being within the red zone of the Williamtown RAF base. So now we have a potential cumulative impact of two different sites on those residents. But there's also potentially new residents that aren't yet identified as being in the zone that now may have impacts. And it was being discussed by Defence as if it was a completely isolated new investigation. And I'm thinking, this is not on. At the Williamtown hearing, there was a lot of suggestion about Defence perhaps not being the best agency to continue to monitor its own clean-up. What are Mm. your thoughts on whether Defence should be the agency to look after its own mess? Right from the very beginning, we were asking for there to be a one-contact point to make it very clear who people should go to, and we were asking for there to be an independent overseer. We were calling for somebody then. Again, from the start, we have always been very, very concerned that the polluter and the agency that has betrayed the community by not telling them about the pollution is responsible for the cleanup and the response. It just continues to frustrate us, appall us, that they are in control of this. Defence are in control. Defence is in complete control of this. And it's been apparent that there have been a lot of differences of opinion between state agencies, federal agencies, particularly Defence and the EPA. That's been apparent from the very beginning as well. And there are no regulations around this stuff. It is complete vacuum. And this is a big responsibility that the state government has and should have acted on already. They haven't moved to ban this stuff. Yes, we need a federal ban, but in the absence of the feds doing it, state could have easily stepped up, as it has in Queensland and South Australia. New South Wales just happy to follow their federal mates and just not do anything. Didn't Gladys Berejiklian come out and say that the federal government needs to clean up this toxic crisis? Yeah, the the state government's submission to the parliamentary inquiry was the strongest we'd seen. Similarly, the council's submission had been too. Port Stephens Council, a bit honestly, we have sat in rooms with all these agencies and state and local council representatives for years now and none of them have stepped up in that environment it's always been left to community or or myself or the federal member Meryl Swanson we just feel like we're speaking into a vacuum all the time and the state government's submission was quite scathing we thought and we thought we'll bring it on but then nothing has happened since then they haven't backed up their words with actions themselves when they've got power and the ability to do it so can they actually ban it from a state perspective they could ban this chemical absolutely and I wrote to them years ago about it because it was coming to me from industry. They were getting pulled up for things and yet there was no actual regulation around it. We are behind where everybody else is at internationally in terms of our understanding on the health impacts, in terms of our regulation and removal of it from usage in every setting. What are you hearing as far as health goes and what sort of things are people telling you how their health has been affected? A lot of different things. So it seems that there are a lot of different cancers that people are suffering from or have suffered from. It's it's coming out in all sorts of ways. I know ex-firefighters as well, you know, a fellow has just um, got through bladder cancer and also historically, you know, fathers, uncles, this sort of retrospective understanding of what the area may well have done to their families has been really hard. I'm hearing a lot of residents are very frightened to go back and have another test done in terms of where they're at on their abnormal 
health findings. Okay, last question. What do you want to see happen for the residents? Um, I know there's a class action with lawyers, but class action's not set till the end of 2019, I believe. Do you think the residents are going to get any compensation, any money, anything to significantly help them before that time? What's your view? I hope so. And what would you like to see happen? What should happen? I'd like to see at least some offerings available it needs to be a range of offerings because people want different things and people's needs are very different some people are happy to stay some people just desperately want to leave I I think people need the option to be able to leave if they can and to be compensated for losses that they've incurred as a result of the contamination there's going to be the immediate financial loss that most people have suffered already and then down the track there's going to be the health side and that door must always stay open for the residents to be able to, once the science improves and the understanding improves, so that they can come back and say to the defence, you did this to me and now you've got to help me. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Please download and share so more people can hear this. Next episode of Talking PFAS. Associate Professor Robert Niven is very concerned about the scope of PFAS contamination in Australia. How concerned are you about these chemicals? I am, I am very concerned. I see this as the next asbestos. I really do. Thank you once again for listening to Talking PFAS and feel free to leave a review on iTunes. Thanks very much. See you next time. All the information and audio in today's episode is copyright. Please contact me for permissions. Thank you.